Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another Moving to Live podcast. As you heard in the intro, we are a podcast about movement, part of what makes your life complete. We really want to push people to think about movement as a lifestyle rather than an activity. If you're listening to this podcast and you have an idea for somebody who you think might make an interesting interview, give us a contact through any of the social media things that we talked about in the intro. Drop us an email. Also, if you're listening to it, whatever the method you're listening to it, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., give us some feedback. Let us know what you think about it. It's amazing when you start doing podcasts, how you meet other podcasters and how you begin to, not in a lazy way, but in a good way, share guests. And a good friend of mine is Eric Malzone. And when I was talking to Eric about podcasts, he said, oh, you know, somebody you should have on your podcast, Moving to Live, is Eric Chesson. He's doing some neat things with fitness. After talking to Eric a little bit before uh, this interview, I learned that he actually graduated from Cal U, where I am currently employed, and I suspect as we talk, we'll find even more connections since he is a New York guy. Eric is a longtime fitness professional. He is involved with and has the business Autism Fitness, which is education and certification for fitness professionals who are working with clients with autism. So, Eric, thanks for taking time on a Friday afternoon to talk to Moving to Live. Happy to do it, Ben. My first question I always ask everybody that I interview for Moving to Live is to give your 30-second or so elevator speech or standing in line at the airport waiting to go through security speech when somebody sees you in an autism fitness t-shirt and say, says, what's that? Autism fitness is a business that whose mission is to bring fitness and adapted PE programs to the whole of the autism population, meaning not just young people, but all individuals, regardless of age or ability level on the autism spectrum, uh, meaningful programs that can uh, not only enhance life skills and activities of daily living, but 
also with results that are measurable. We're going to talk more specifically about that in part two of the interview, which we'll release in two weeks. But I always like to find out about the people that I'm interviewing and their stories. So pretty much anybody who is involved in the movement industry likes to move. There are exceptions. I know from talking to you a little bit, you like to move. Were you active as a kid? If you were, what did you do? You know, it's it's funny. As a kid in my uh in my childhood years, we were, I feel, so I'm 38 now, I feel like my generation is the last one that kind of played outside without our parents knowing where we were. So my, my framework for how I grew up was we lived in a big uh, garden apartment complex that was close to the Long Island Sound. And we would, we would crawl through a a break in in the chain lick fence and wander down to the swamp. It was literally marshes past the Long Island Railroad near the train station. There were egrets, there were turtles, um, there there were little ponds. There was silt and sand, and we were constantly the kids in the neighborhood were constantly playing different sports. So we'd be playing baseball with a tennis ball for an hour and then we'd be playing stoop ball and then we would switch to football and we would do season. We were multi-sport athletes and really embraced play too. I can remember running around outside with a a wooden gun or a wooden sword that my grandfather uh, whittled for me, which now would obviously be unheard of and would land me if, if not an in-school suspension, then certainly a visit to the, the school counselor or psychiatrist office. And my, my favorite quote about my childhood is from my mom, who said on multiple occasions, you would come home bleeding, and I would say, what happened? And he'd say, I don't know. And I think that's just so indicative of, of a good childhood with time well spent in the outdoors, where you scraped yourself, but you were too busy actually having fun to realize that you were bleeding and there was dirt in the cut, but that's not a big deal because you're not going to get infected. It's you're, you're, you're fine. You're okay. And you, you learn to deal with adversity and, and in a group of children, you also learn, you learn leadership and you, you learn a little bit about communication and you learn how to interact with other people because sometimes there are no adults around and, and decisions have to be made. Sometimes very poor decisions, sometimes <laughs> moderately Poor, uh, poor decisions. And in, I was always involved in Little League. So my thing was baseball. And towards the beginning of high school, my skills began dwindling and I began gaining a lot of weight. I was one of those kids that really liked to eat. So I, that, that had to be buffered by my level of activity. As my participation in baseball grew less, and finally, I, I unceremoniously left the team as the second string catcher in my, uh, in my senior year. I had really put on a, a lot of weight. I was an overweight kid because I liked to eat. And I, it's not that I didn't like to move, but I was sedentary by proxy of, you know, when you're 15, 16, you're not usually running around on, on the jungle gym anymore. You're not moving around the playground. It became segmented, uh, particularly in the, in the 90s to team sports or, or extracurricular sports. And that wasn't my thing. I was just done with, with teams. Uh, and 
And my journey there from a psychological and emotional perspective, in middle school, I became, you know, the overweight kid. I was probably 40 pounds overweight, so I was this little chunkster. And uh, it, it certainly affected my, my not uh, partially my viewpoint of myself. I would never say that I really had a self-esteem issue, but the way that I interacted with other people also. I, I became a little bit withdrawn. I didn't want friends. I, I wouldn't say that I became a loner. It, it wasn't that extreme, but I was very selective about who I wanted to be around. And it was, it was my junior year of, of high school. And I just remember walking into the weight room one day and we had this cruddy old universal machine with the old tan camel <laughs> leather on it. I just remember walking in and thinking, I want to change something. I'm going into this weight room and having no idea, just playing around on, on the pull down. And just, I, I was afraid to use the free weights, uh, and, and any barbells, but I started just moving. And I remember one day over the summer, I actually walked into the weight room when there was no supervision, nobody there. And a janitor eventually kicked me out and said, you're not supposed to be in here. And around that time, I also discovered martial arts, too. So I got into Jeet Kune Do and uh, later on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I remember in high school, what happened was, I think, a, a combination of late puberty kicking in and me being more active with weightlifting and, and martial arts and, uh, and becoming a little more aware of, of nutrition. I lost somewhere between 40 and 50 pounds within about a year. And then I would have, you know, I, I went to school on the North Shore of Long Island, which can be, there's of course a, a story and a, a perspective, but there, there's a good amount of superficiality in, in an area like that. I grew up in an area with a lot of money. I, my family did, my family moved to a small apartment so that my sister and I could attend uh, what was at the time the number three school system in, in the country. So, you know, coming, coming from that, area a lot of thing was uh, a lot was about looks and a lot was about you know the car and a lot was about the clothes so i had people coming up to me in my senior year saying hey eric you look great how you doing i just told people to 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 screw off i really didn't want i i had even then i didn't want the attention and i didn't think oh now i can be popular i thought just get away from me and uh and my senior yearbook in high school, which I didn't even buy, uh, as I've always said, I don't want one, I don't care. But when they have senior quotes, I pulled something from Calvin and Hobbes, and the quote was, from now on, I'll connect the dots my own way. And that was the beginning of, of the journey for me, but the, the weight room and, and martial arts and doing whatever uh, ridiculous, I was just talking about this today with uh, my friend who, who's also the head coach at the gym where I train. I said my first uh, training program that I followed was this Navy SEAL workout on VHS tape. And it was all body weight, mostly upper body stuff. But it was, you know, it was something. And at the time, I was motivated to do it. So fitness became this, you know, to say, it's a, 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 to say it was a lifestyle and that it changed my life is true, although somewhat trite and cliche, but it led me 
to really what was my my way of being or my standard operating procedure then was I had to move. And that was, and then, then at about 1920, as I entered college, I really got into weightlifting, um, got into training more. And I've been doing things with barbells and heavy stuff ever since. And I've, I've changed, I've, I've changed around training methods for a long time. It was hypertrophy. And then I got into competitive Olympic lifting. I've been powerlifting over the last year as well. So at, at 37, I started my career in powerlifting, but because of the background now I'm in, in, uh, uh, in our federation, I'm in the top 10 lifters having, having done two, uh, competition. So the, the, the background in all those years of, of building up the engine certainly helped. And that was, that was what created the, the, I guess the background and the foreground for, for my journey into fitness personally. I think, uh, when you were talking, I think the couple of things that came up is when you said you were forced or kids by playing were sometimes forced to make decisions and take leadership roles. And sometimes the decisions weren't the best. My thought at that was rather than the adults who do stupid things saying, hold my beer and watch this. It was a situation yeah. of hold my juice box and watch. Oh yeah. This. Yeah. Hold my high safe. And the other thing that really struck me that I'd never really thought about before is although I did not grow up in a uh, area like, like you did, I grew up in upstate New York is just being able to go out and play. And by playing the different sports unorganized and in my case, it was streams and uh, ponds, you develop a variety of movement skills that I would imagine there are a fair number of kids today don't have because mom and dad at six years old say, okay, you need to decide between T-ball and soccer and whichever it is, we'll support that. Right. And I think one of, one of the things that's missing from that is it's, it's too structured. Like there's no, tell me where the room for creativity is in T-Bowl, right? Tell me where the room for really high quality creative decision-making or problem solving is in a, in a game of soccer. It's not to diminish or belittle that pursuit. It's, where do you make time for creative play skills? So for example, as we were climbing through that hole in the fence, you got to squat and move laterally so that you don't get a piece of metal fence in your thigh. Right. I'm not thinking about squatting. I'm thinking about not ripping my pants. And I was also thinking that, uh, my, my childhood game, although I did play some organized sports, it sounds at a level similar to yours, is in the summer we used to play two-person or two-person te- two team wiffle ball where first base was the tree, second base yeah. was the concrete sundial, yep. Yep. and third base was the corner of the glass picture window. Oh, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> we would play baseball out back on the apartment, and there was a parking lot there, and there was the one guy who didn't – for you know, surprisingly didn't want us to hit his car with the tennis ball. Imagine the, the nerve of this, of this adult to this day, because my parents still live in the same spot. There is a sign out back, a steel white sign in big, bold black lettering that says positively no ball playing allowed. And sometimes I'll go over there and, you know, I'll, I'll grab the trash at the end of dinner and, and take it out back and throw it out. And I just look up at the sign and I just smile <laughs> so as a result of my actions. When I was nine years old, that sign still exists. And in the big picture, if you look at it, that ruins potential play opportunities for kids living there today. 
that was my next point is that there are no kids back there playing. So you have a pretty wide variety of movement opportunities. And I think it could be argued that by not being very good at baseball and kind of self-selecting yourself out of it, you didn't get trapped in that thing, in that uh, competitive phase where can I go to the next level and at some point stop without having an additional plan. So oh, you go, yeah. yeah. So you go to college. What are you majoring in college? Did you Were okay. you thinking fitness career then? <laughs> I was thinking I was going to be a United States Marshal, and I did my undergrad at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Forensic Psychology. So I guess the, the easy question is, what the hell happened? What did you do? You graduate, <laughs> I, with, you graduate with a bachelor's degree and I did you liked, join the marshals? I, no, I liked rules and orders and I, I really liked the idea of criminal justice. I did. It was just something that appealed to me. Probably, that was probably one of my pulls towards uh, martial arts. And what happened was I think uh, – some very liberal professors in the, in that school and and some dialogue and some education on uh, on philosophy, society, and American history as well in contemporary uh, American politics. But what happened as well was I got so much into weightlifting and fitness that after I graduated, I stayed. I I knew midway through my uh, my bachelor's that I didn't want to pursue a career in criminal justice, but I loved the program so much. And even though it was a forensic psychology program, we didn't get into any of that curriculum until senior year. So most of it was general psychology. And I loved that. I, I loved uh, behavioral psychology. I loved um, any, anything that had to do with clinical psychology. I became fascinated with. So coming out of undergrad, I thought I wanted to go into sports psychology. So I got my certification as a personal trainer and was working in a, in a small gym with a, a few personal training clients. And this is when I was, I was really new. I was pulling training programs out of T nation to, to use and modifying them a little bit, which is not, you know, not necessarily the worst thing that you can ever do, but that's, you know, that was my, my point of reference then again, not, not bad, mm -hmm. but that that's where I was um, in in my training career, and I was going to uh, to uh, CUNY for my um, postgraduate work in general psych. Thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go into sports psychology at at some point, and it was only through a chance meeting with a classmate that I wound up uh, <laughs> founding Autism Fitness. I think it's interesting your your comment on T Nation. I think the wonderful thing that's happened since the '90s is the internet because there's so much information out there. Uh, as an alternative, to that I think the worst thing that's happened since then is the internet because there's so much information out there. Unless you're a critical consumer, you're going to end up with a lot of crap. So I think there's some really good stuff on websites such as T Nation if you are a critical consumer mm. rather than somebody who says. This, this is great stuff because it was on T Nation or any, or any other website that's similar to that, not to single them out. I think that's also a process of, 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 of having critical thinking being at the forefront of our educational system or, or lack thereof, too. Because if, if logic and 
science or the scientific method and um, and and just the processes of good decision making were at the forefront of our education system. You could have, uh, you know, fourteen thousand out of fifteen thousand websites being absolute garbage, but nobody would be sharing them, or someone would be able to look at it and say this information is compelling and it's written in a way that makes it seem true, but if I cross-reference it with anything that is available in, in the way of either peer review or, or just what, what makes sense, then I can discount this almost immediately. And I think the problem is not only one of the, the massive amount of misinformation or, you know, whether intended or unintended, but also a, a consequence of an education system that doesn't prioritize those things. I think it also, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I'm reminded when you say that uh, I'm fairly active in the NSCA and I posted an article uh, a while ago on the sports medicine SIG group. And it was a, just to, to share with other people. And it was a, a, a critical review. And one of the things in the article said, this is a nice review or somebody who had written about it. And a good friend of mine who's my mentor sent me and some other people professionally who are involved in the organization, um, not as representatives of the NSCA, but just uh, peers. And actually, I would look at him as above me saying, you know, this was an interesting article. It, it, was, it had some good points, but, you know, notice that they called it a nice article. Research articles are not nice. They may be well-written, you know, well-substantiated, but nice is not something that you should do. And you should kind of file that away when you do your own writing and when you're reading critically. And I don't think any of us took it as a bad thing. He's yelling at us or yelling at us in writing. You know, we, we all took it as like, oh, that's a really good point. I'm glad he pointed it out. And I think too many people would take that as he's attacking me personally, or he's saying I made the wrong decision. Well, it, this is a nice article. It's perfectly acceptable if it's the author's mom commenting. It's not right. Uh, and his point was, it wasn't what you said in the profession. <laughs> right. And, and I had actually missed that one phrase. And I, I sent him an email. I said, yo, this is, I, I want people, you know, the argument is if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And, yep. and I believe that to this day. I'm curious with what your first personal training certification was and how you made the decision to pick that one because, you know, there's literally an alphabet soup. And if we did yep. a Google search, I would be shocked if there were less than a thousand personal training certifications of various levels of quality. Oh, man, that would be the ISSA certification. Uh, oh, I think it was a crunch on Long Island and it was taught by Dr. Jack Barnathan. I don't know if he's still around. And how did you pick that certification? I couldn't. I, I don't remember. I, I don't, you know what? It might have been. No, I don't want to misspeak because I was going to say that I thought some coach that I, that I respected uh, had done some courses for them, but I don't even recall if that was the case. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand with I don't recall. <laughs> the honest answer, which is always good. <laughs> So you're getting your master's degree with a plan to go into sports psychology. Yeah. And just by your, your, are you doing some personal training on the side in addition to yep. your martial arts? Yeah. Yeah. At this point, was I still doing? Yeah. At this point, I think I was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was, do, I was um, doing personal tra training sessions at a small boutique gym on Long Island. 
And I was, I knew enough that I knew that the owner and head coach was being ridiculous when he started showing me how to take all, every fly through a machine circuit. And then he got angry with me when I gave his, his client a, a benching protocol and he wound up benching 300 for the first time. But technically it was his client, so I shouldn't have intervened, which I saw, he, he, he was right from a professional standpoint. However, from a performance standpoint. <laughs> so why the decision to do this uh, or the thought process that you were going to do sports psychology rather than, uh, which ended up happening, going, yeah. into, going into fitness? What was the thought process then? The, the, well, I, I just wanted to combine the two. So I thought, okay, maybe I can be a combination. Um, you know, it was almost the Barbie effect. I want to be a ballerina and, you know, I, and I also want to be a, a, you know, a, on, on the UN. And when I'm not doing that, I want to save dolphins. So I thought, okay, maybe there's something that I can do with, with fitness and also with psychology. So I thought, you know, you look at what's out there before you start inventing stuff. And I said, okay, sports psychology, I want to help athletes, particularly um, you know, strength sport athletes in some way. I didn't quite, I, I wanted, I wanted my education to fill in the blanks for what I thought I wanted to do or the stuff that I liked. I wanted to take the stuff that I liked and put it together like Legos and, and, I, and find I know, a career out of that. And I know a little bit about this story cause we've chatted before, yeah. but just by accident, how did you find fitness and realize that, Hey, there's a niche for training people with autism. Yeah. So in one of my, um, in one of my, Oh, what was it? It was fundamentals of behavior analysis classes in, uh, in graduate school, which was, um, it was a dry, dry <laughs> class, but I had a classmate who said, Hey, I, I know you're a personal trainer and I work in this program in Manhattan with teenagers on the autism spectrum. And we've never actually had a structured fitness program. And you're obviously getting some education here about, uh, ABA and applied behavior analysis. And, um, would you be interested in working with us? So over the course of a bus ride over the train station, she convinced me to apply for this job and, and take a meeting with the program director. And they said, okay, you know, hire him. So I started there and I'm still working with this program today, three days a week too. It's um, a satellite program based out of the Johns Hopkins neurology department, uh, small re uh, research program in, in the city. But it's cool because I've, got, I've, I've had 15 years experience with the same individuals also, which is, you know, fascinating and it gives some longevity and it's taught me so much about, what happens when you have effective interventions at, at the right time? Because I've seen the opposite also. From, from there, when I started working with in, in that program, I thought maybe there's something to this. So I, I looked you know, in, in my limited searches for fitness for the autism or special needs population, I didn't find much information. I remember reading one article that said something to the effect of, Fitness is important for all populations, special needs populations included. 
Right. Okay, great. What do I do with that? So my strategy was to, from a physical perspective, train these teenagers with the same um, with the same protocols, albeit modified physically, and we'll get into the adaptive and the cognitive later, the same, uh, the same way. Because it didn't make sense to say, well, let's find completely different exercise. And I'm thinking, well, they're human beings, and everybody's got a squat, and everybody's got a press, and everybody's got a pull, so let's do that. Around, um, around a year later, I was contacted by a behavior therapist who called me and said, I, I do, I think I had, I, I don't know if I took out an ad or I just started writing articles or I, maybe I advertised in one publication and she contacted me and said, I, I do EI. So early intervention, which is typically four, four years old and, and under, she said, I just took on these, uh, these two cases. They're two 12 year old boys and I have no idea what to do with them. Can you help? I said, I think so. So I started working with these two, uh, two 12 year old boys, one of whom I still work with. In fact, after you and I are done with this uh, podcast today, I'm going to work with him. He's you know, 24 now. And so there, there's, um, there's a beautiful longevity with a lot of the athletes that I have where I get to see them transition from childhood into adolescence, into teenage years, and then into adulthood. Um, as, as well, which has is, is really been valuable for me. And the, the other part was all of, the, all of the athletes that I worked with early on had significant uh, behavioral and cognitive delays too. So it's not as though I broke into the field and said, well, I only want to work with high-functioning individuals. Like I, my early years saw – you know, aggressive behavior, self-injurious behavior, um, running out of the room, you know, all of these things that it, it gave me a very good sense of what needs to be considered when working with this population. So 10 years later, when I started developing the, the autism fitness methodology and the PAC profile, it wasn't, well, you know, individuals who are already motivated and individuals who are already capable, great. And everybody else, sorry, I don't have anything for you. It was bring me whoever, whenever, and, and let's do this because there's a, there's always what I teach in the certification is that we always want to establish baseline because that's going to give us what we need in order to set the next goal. We're talking with Eric Chesson. Eric is the founder of Autism Fitness, which is a fitness certification company that teaches fitness professionals how to work with clients and athletes who have autism. He's given us a great background on how he came from essentially playing in the marshes as a kid to where he is today. And I'm looking forward to coming back in two weeks and talking more specifically on autism and working with individuals who have autism to essentially make them move more and make them move better. So Eric, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Definitely, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. 
Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.